Our gospel lesson is in the book of Luke, the third chapter. Beginning at verse 15. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I'm not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary. But the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. But Herod, the ruler, who had been rebuked by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the evil things that Herod had done, added to them all by shutting John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can we bow, please, for prayer? On this unusual Sunday, Lord, we pause with expectation that our worship is acceptable to you remotely and in our homes and especially in our hearts. Hear our longing today for words that help us that heal us. Hear our longing today for our pastor to be well, that she may know even now how much she is loved. Hear our longing today for all of our people, all of your people everywhere, that we may know what it is to have your words blossom within our own hearts. In the name of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> I have a checkered history with baptism. I think it started a long time ago with my ordination council, a, a group from my home church and other churches in the area who were gathered to examine my fitness for ordination. Truly, I was too young to be ordained and too naive to appreciate what I was doing. But we were like campers gathered around our comforting theological campfire, a fire upon which we all agreed, at least until I was asked a question about baptism. I gave the expected answer, the traditional Baptist answer, but then I added that I respected other churches and their approach to baptism as well, and the campfire almost went out. A definite chill descended, a few angry questions were exchanged, and then one man in a very challenging tone that very clearly implied the answer that he wanted said, if somebody was on their deathbed and asked you to sprinkle them, would you do it? And I said, yes, I would. That was not the answer he wanted. I'd just thrown a cup of gasoline on that theological campfire. And what was usually a up and down vote done in a few seconds, took them over an hour of debate to decide if they should baptize me. 
I mean, ordained me. And I wonder, what is it about baptism that evokes such explosive response? Through the years, I've performed numerous baptisms. One year in Missouri, our church had its annual picnic at Merrimack Spring Park, not to be confused with Merrimack State Park. Merrimack Spring Park, there's a spring there that produces 92 million gallons of fresh, ice-cold water every day. We were downstream, but a couple of hundred yards did nothing to warm that water. I thought it might be thigh deep. It was chest deep. And a few well-marinated hecklers from the bank reminded us how foolish we looked. I've conducted baptisms in a heated baptistry, which, which is my preference, only to discover water seeping into my waders because a couple of deacons thought it'd be cool to see how I responded to leakage. I baptized an older child at the home of the innocents in their warm saltwater pool, which I have to tell you is just a little bit of heaven on earth. The child had no control over motor function and had to be lowered into the pool with a hydraulic lift. A nurse donned a bathing suit and got in the water with us to make sure the child would be safe. And after the baptism, she pulled the child around on a raft in the pool in what had to be a victory lap. And I wonder, what is it about baptism that holds such power for us that we use hydraulic lifts? Once I visited a hospice patient whose remaining time was clearly short, and she wanted to be baptized. And she told me she believed that baptism had to be by immersion. And yet her bones were so brittle, there was a metal rod sticking out of her shoulder and out of her elbow holding her arm together. Bones so brittle that any movement that met resistance risked breaking another bone. Getting her up, getting her in a car, getting her into water, pulling her up out of water, each step guaranteed more brokenness and more pain. I had to convince her that Jesus never asked any of us to break our bones for baptism. I sprinkled her in bed that day, and I did not care what my ordination council might say. What is it about baptism that made this woman willing to risk her very bones? What's the power of this ritual that draws people to a wilderness to be insulted by a bug-eating prophet who calls them out for their fraud and their cruelty? This one who baptizes with water but promises somebody who'll come along and baptize with fire. And for the literal minded, that doesn't sound very appetizing. And yet here is this phrase in the 21st verse, when all the people were baptized. Who are these people? Luke mentions a few, a tax collector, a soldier, someone who I think is a racist who claims that their ancestry makes them acceptable to God, makes them special. But there are more. Three people don't make a crowd. Who are all these people? And I wonder if they're the people that Luke will introduce us to throughout the gospel. A leper yelling out about social distancing, living his life barely 
on the fringe. A paralyzed person and another whose hand is useless, both who are devalued because they cannot do what they used to do. A centurion, Rome's police officer, with a deep concern for a servant, and I can't imagine but what he's out of step with other police officers who don't care about the Israelite people. A woman who lost her son, perhaps surrounded by people who anxiously change the subject every time her grief comes up, but her grief is constantly with her. A woman caught in adultery, embarrassed and shamed by a mob who simply want to throw their self-righteous rocks at her. A schizophrenic in a cemetery, the place for the dead. Maybe one who wonders what it is to feel normal. A rich young ruler, part of the 1%, whose soul's poverty drives him to seek and whose wealth strangles his possibilities. A blind beggar who can't even see a baptism and yet somehow sees more clearly than most his need for mercy. And one of the few who has a name, Zacchaeus, a tax collector, the wee little man climbing a tree that we sang about, his children, leaving his dignity on the ground, and perhaps leaving behind all those elbows in the crowd from the people who were mad at him for stealing money from them. He's a white-collar criminal. Are there priests for whom the words of Jesus echo in their minds like a reverberating bell? They may want to know more, but they don't dare risk their positions by talking to their peers. Luke describes this crowd as filled with expectation and yet questioning in their hearts about John, about the Messiah, and I think about themselves. Because all these folks share a common characteristic, they are alone in the crowd. They're alone with their guilt. How can they possibly confess in a judgmental world. They're alone with their disease. They've tried the garlic. But what else is there? They're alone with their grief. Who can possibly know the depths of their pain? And who can listen to their experience of mystery without thinking them crazy? They're alone with their differences. Maybe like a teenager who knows that when the doctor smacked their newborn bottoms and declared their gender, that the doctor was wrong. And they sit in silence in our pews, hearing religious authorities judge and condemn and demonize with zealous ignorance. Or maybe their parents whose world of expectations, conscious and unconscious, have been turned upside down by the coming out of their courageous child. And they will always, always choose their child over somebody else's harsh theology. But it sure would be good to have a couple of friends to hear, to listen, to support. But over the years, you've heard him say too much. Too much harsh stuff about folks who are different. You dare not trust them with your heart. Or a whistleblower who knows that life may be threatened and certainly livelihood will be at risk if you speak up and tell the truth. Whether you work for Facebook or for the police or whether you're a politician. 
What is this power of baptism that speaks to us so strongly, this symbol that calls us? Luke calls John's baptism a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Spells out what it means with a demand for accountability. He asked them to bear fruit worthy of repentance, to live lives that are soulfully nurturing for others. Live a life with a diet rich in humility and kindness and curiosity and seeking and justice. Live generously, he told them. Trust that with God there's enough for all, that there's, there is abundance Live honestly, stop cheating, live truthfully, stop making up lies and conspiracy theories. And for the Roman police overlords, stop abusing people with your power. Protect the vulnerable with your strength. John called the people to live accountably to God, more so than to their peers, beyond their privileges, beyond their power. And this accountability sets up that dramatic moment when Jesus is baptized and the heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and announces, you are mine. You are mine, my beloved. I am proud of you. Luke's gospel goes on to detail a whole cast of characters with reason to believe that God is not pleased with them. The religious leaders remind them that they're not good enough. The Romans oppress their freedom. Illness stalks their vitality. And fear, the spawn of ignorance, bullied them at every turn. And yet here is this heavenly voice laying claim and pronouncing pride. And throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus moves across these barriers of ignorance and greed and hatred and racism, voicing love and delight in people. It's that sacred voice, immersing one's soul with the knowledge of being loved and the call to live a full and true and authentic life. As a hospice chaplain, my services would often be declined, about half the time, actually. It wasn't personal, it was just a fact. One day, one of the nurses that I just dearly loved and respected for her professional expertise and just for who she was, <clears throat> asked me to come see this man who was voicing suicide ideation. And I reminded her that I was not accepted there, that I had been declined. And she said, she was a force of nature. She just said, I'll see to it that he lets you come visit him. He was a big man. He'd done prison time. And when I got there, he said to me that he wasn't worth the bullet for his brain pan. With bitterness, he said he'd never done anything good in his whole life. He did not kill himself that day, and we had more conversations. And in one of those conversations, he mentioned a nephew that he'd helped the nephew tune up a car. But he went on in his conversation as if that was just nothing. And I stopped him and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, back up, back up. You helped the nephew tune up his car. I thought you'd never done anything good. Maybe your nephew thought that was good. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe. Ever done anything else like that, I asked. And grudgingly, he thought and told me of something else. 
And then it got to be this mantra where every time he told me something else, I would ask him the same question again. Have you ever done anything else like that? And it was like the dawn, in slow motion, really. You could see the light come on, barely at the beginning, but begin to burn brightly. When he finally believed that maybe there was a God who could love even him. We had other conversations that led to his baptism. A local church allowed us their baptistry. I remember the day standing there behind the doors. He was dancing with anxiety from foot to foot, nervous. I asked him what he thought about his baptism. I asked him what he thought it meant. And he stopped dancing and he said, I know I have God in my heart, and I know God has me in his. We find the power of baptism there in that place where we hear within ourselves that we are loved, that God takes delight in us, there where we find the power of God laying claim to us. And just as spoke to Jesus, you're mine, and I'm proud of you, so we may hear the words as well. Occasionally, I wonder what my ordination council would say, but I don't spend much time worrying about it. Amen. Oh,